Hello, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Learning to Live podcast. My name is Chaz Okada, and this week we have two very special guests on our show. Take when Brian Ritchie own a glass wall manufacturing company which allows a squash court to be changed into a racquetball court and vice versa via a special movable glass wall system. Today, they have hundreds of glass walls spread throughout the country, and they take quite an interesting approach to business. Not only are they married, but they also have a family. And in this interview, they talk about how their family is a motivation for their business. This interview will be split up into two halves, so stay tuned for next week's episode where the second half will be released. In this week's half of the interview, they talk about how they started and grew their business, as well as some of the challenges that they faced along the way. I think that's enough said for now, so let's get into the interview. Thank you both for coming on the show. Thank you, Chaz. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So would you mind starting off by telling us a little bit about your business? Sure. We started back in 1985. We are a structural glass for squash and racquetball courts, and we supply internationally as well as in the U.S. We started our business because I wanted to be able to stay at home with our kids and have the flexibility of being a family as opposed to actually having to go out and have your kids be in daycare. Yeah, we made a conscious decision to have a business that would allow us the flexibility to be with our kids so that we would take them to school, we'd work, pick them up from school, and do their extracurricular activities, and then return back to the office after they're in bed and able to finish up doing all of our our work. So we ended up with a kind of a split time uh, schedule. What made you settle into doing business in the racquetball and squash court industry? That is an interesting story. I worked for a gentleman that had was in that business and for five years continued to learn the whole entire business from who the manufacturers were, who our customers were, and when I, he decided that my getting married was going to be a hindrance on the work relationship, I went into comp, uh, business against him. We decided that uh, together that it would be make sense to, rather than tackle him, say, on a wrongful discharge suit or something like that, but to t- take him on in the business world and ran him out of business in probably, what, 18 months? Pretty much so. Do you have any advice for somebody that is currently going through a similar situation, Mrs. Ritchie? Stay strong. You want to make sure that you don't give in. And instead of going out of your way to find it as far as suing him or wrongful termination... I did it more where I'm just going to put the guy out of business. And that's what I did. And haven't heard from him, haven't seen him, don't even know where he is. And that's just stay strong is basically what you have to do. 
That sounds pretty similar to advice that my mom gives me. She always says to keep it positive and keep my actions constructive. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you for being willing to share that with us. Do you think that you could tell us a little bit about the early days of your business and what it was like when you were just getting started? The rough patches in the start is basically trying to find your customers. As you can see racquetball courts and squash courts, you can think to yourself, well, how many of those do they need to build? Here I am almost 30 years later, and my boss was in there for 25 years. There's a lot of racquetball and squash courts out there. But getting to know and to develop the new customer base that you're trying to aim for, I was fortunate that I was able to work with the customers um, that my ex-company had. Um, So therefore, I knew who they were, talked with them, showed them the better product, showed them what we can do. Funny story is, is that I had... I always envisioned with white hardware, it would look better in a racquetball court since the white, the whole court is white. I only wanted to do it because it was pretty, it looked a lot better than the black hardware that was available at that time. We developed our product where it's powder coated white, so it matches the court, gives it a very good um, change between the dark ball and a contrast between the black hardware versus our our hardware. And therefore the customers loved it and the players loved it, especially since it gave them that contrast that was needed. They didn't, wouldn't lose any lost shots. And of course, when the squash pro told me, he's like, it's the best idea ever that you ever came up with this because the contrast and the ball difference, you don't have any of those lost shots anymore. And I was like, of course, that's why we did it. Not because I thought it was pretty. (laughs) My boss thought it was a stupid idea. So therefore, I implemented one of the changes in the industry is now people want white hardware. Fortunately for us, that since we make our hinges and other components out of aluminum, we're able to powder coat to any color, whereas virtually every other manufacturer out there is using injected molded nylon. And when you try to make that white... it's very difficult to integrate UV protections in the plastic. So when it's under ultraviolet light, fluorescent lights, that tends to yellow over time. Whereas our powder coated surface never yellows. It's always brilliant white, always looks great. But to get back to the early days, the very first double play movable wall was manufactured by Taco's dad. And Upon her insistence, they filed for a patent on that product, which was fortuitous because it protected the company for 20 years in avoiding any competition from entering into the marketplace. That very first movable wall, even though she was at the time employed by her previous employer, she was smart enough to know that providing the entire system installed to her old employer made a lot better sense than providing individual invoices for the components of the extrusions and the hinges and all of that. Because in that way, the intellectual property ownership was maintained with her rather than with her old boss. So when she did break sever her ties with her old boss, that intellectual property followed with her and 
didn't fall in the hands of, of, of her old, of her old boss. That movable wall is kind of a side story here. That movable wall that was installed back in 1990, I believe, was installed at a private athletic club in Grand Junction. Recently, that that uh, club has either closed down or has reprovisioned that space for other uses where that squash and racquetball court was and donated the movable wall to Colorado Mountain University. Shaw Construction has dismantled the movable wall and it is currently in storage in a hangar in at the Grand Junction Airport. And next week, we are going to take that movable wall, the glass, the frame, refurbish it, and reinstall it at Colorado Mountain University. So the very first product that was ever sold by A-Best Enterprises is, will still be in use almost 30 years later. So that's a real testament to the quality of the, of the design, the product, um, and our longevity. I think that's just an interesting story. Early days in the sales cycle were very difficult. We did not have any customers. The only customer we had was the customer in Grand Junction that was really the customer that belonged to the old Takeo's old employer. So we had a well thought out product, well on its way to getting its for getting the patent, but we had no customers. So we started by exhibiting at trade shows. There's two major trade shows in our industry. One is athletic business. The other, URSA, which is the International Health and Racket Sports Association. The people that would come by our booth were intrigued because it was a, it was a relatively new concept. There was another c- company out there that was producing a movable wall, but it really didn't have any of the real benefits that that we had. So we met this gentleman from at one of these trade shows from the Los Angeles Athletic Club. And Jim was very impressed and wanted uh, called uh, after visiting our booth at the trade show and wanted first somebody to come down to Los Angeles to uh, to visit the uh, to visit his club and talk to his athletic director and uh, all of the powers that be to try to uh, give them show them the benefits of the product, which I did. Now that you mention it, could you quickly explain what the movable wall is and why it's so special? The double play movable wall, our signature product, is a structural glass wall system that converts the dimensions of a racquetball court to that of a squash court. Racquetball courts are 40 feet long. Squash courts are 32 feet long. So the idea is for a glass back wall to move eight feet within the existing footprint so that the real estate in that room can be used to play two different sports. So for a club or a university that wants to enlarge their client base by offering another sport, it makes uh, makes great sense. It also allows them not to have to build, say, three racquetball courts and three squash courts. You can build four with a movable wall, and you can still have robust tournaments appeal to a, a wider range of, of people. 
Did ABES Enterprises design the first movable wall? Yes, we did. The funny thing about that story is, I'll elaborate on Brian's story. He has Jim. He gets him to... From the LA Los Angeles Athletic Club. And he says, we've got, it's got some good news and I got some bad news, hon. And I'm like, okay, what's the good news? He says, the guy's on board. He wants to do it. I says, well, then what's the bad news? He goes, the bad news is he wants to visit the facility. And we're like, oh no, because we're just starting out. So the facility is my dad's place. He lives on a farm and he has a hodgepodge of everything. So you have trucks, old cars, mixes of tools in his shop. So I call up my dad and I says, you have to clean the shop. He's like, what? Why? Is this because we have a visitor? He wants to look at our product and he wants to see how the product is made. So he's out there on a very hot day, busy cleaning up the shop. And then he's thirsty. So he has uh, an old fridge in his shop, grabs what he's in there that's nice and cold, and he calls me up and he says, how feel so good? And I'm like, what is wrong with you? He says, I don't know. I just drank two of these things called wine coolers. Keep in mind, my dad does not drink, so my dad is a little hung over as he's trying to clean the shop for our customer to come and visit us. So there's little bumps on the road. And that was one of them. And that's one of the stories that we love to say, since he doesn't drink. And it was just but we managed to pull it off. And uh, you have to depend on your family quite a bit. If it weren't for my parents, they were down to the last $1,000 in their savings account when they were helping us out when we got this job. So it definitely brought us along. And from there, we were able to build on. And we we're counting how how many jobs we have actually done. And we lost count after 300 installs. Oh, yeah. There are, it's very rewarding to when we're driving across the country, looking at going to a, a job site and to go through all of these towns across the country, you're driving through Kansas and Iowa and, and Illinois, and just town after town, you're remembering installations that we've done over the past 30 years. And there's not a corner of this country that we that hasn't been touched by our products. And that's very gratifying to know that you've been able to contribute that way. Can you talk a little bit about the sales cycle in your industry? The sales cycle is very long. Sometimes or most of the time, we have some initial contact with the end user, whether that be the squash pro or a would-be squash pro at a facility, a uh, club owner, a athletic director or recreation director at a college or university. And the spark is ignited in them with the idea of our products but then the sales cycle takes so long. From there, it has to go to a planning committee, a funding committee, say it's a YMCA, you have to have a capital campaign with the university, the students have to um, vote that they're going to tax themselves basically for a facility that will be built long after that student is even there. 
after they've long graduated. And then it gets goes into, you know, design process, design competition between architects, then an architect is selected, then it has to go out to bid for the general contractor, the general contractor has to put out bids for all of the different components that are inside the facility, one of which being the racquetball and squash courts. And then if we're lucky, one of our dealers will be the successful bidder on building those courts. So from the time we first talk to that athletic director or that squash pro to the time that the facility is actually built and open can be in excess of three years. So you have to have enough projects in the pipeline to be able to support you. And that's why the initial part of the business was so hard because the time lapse from the time that you get somebody on board with wanting your product to the even the opportunity to bid for the project is so long you have to get you have to prime the pump from the very beginning and then ultimately it starts flowing through flowing out at the other end one of the other biggest things in the initial phases is that we had to get specced in the architectural books and that's a standardized book that will tell you which products are approved, which ones can be used, which ones they want to be used in their facility. And that was a really long process as well, is introducing our product to the architects so they can spec it into it and write into the book saying, okay, section 1300, we want ABES Enterprises as our comp- as our supplier. Um Nowadays, we don't have to do that as much because we've been written to the specs. So that takes being in business for 30 years gives you that luxury. Whereas in the beginning, we're just hoping that we can get specced. You'd go to the architect and say, we have this product. We'd like for you to put this in and look at it and review it. And then once they've you've proven yourself, then you have that ability to be listed there. So we did a lot of trade shows to begin with. And then once your name is out there a little bit, then you start doing what they call box lunches in the architectural community. Because now the architects, you've been exhibiting at the same shows that the architects are are exhibiting at. They see you. They start getting name recognition. Then you invite yourself to do a box lunch for architects. And you have an opportunity to buy them lunch in their office and they all come in and you have the opportunity to tell your story and get them excited about the product. And then the spec writers within those architectural communities, like Teiko was saying, then start writing your name into the specifications. So when a new project comes about and you may not even know about it since you've educated the architect on your products, when the bid documents come out for that job, then it says a best enterprises is one of the approved vendors. In real positive cases, there's one architect in particular who's so favorable to us that the spec is written, movable glass walls by a best enterprises or approved equal comma no known equal so in other words 
somebody has a very high bar to to reach to say that okay we're equal to a best enterprises anything that falls short of that that benchmark they will not allow in their facility that's the ideal situation wow that's quite fascinating in school i never really learn about vendors and suppliers and sales cycles and architectural books and being written to the code it's it's i never even knew that existed so that's that's quite an interesting fact now that you're an established company what are your individual roles and how do you balance the life between being married and being business partners i'm the boss <laughs> <laughs> which actually he gets fired every day yeah. but he keeps coming back now, working together as husband and wife, we're together a lot. Um, we have a lot of friends and family that look at us and say, I don't know how you do it. I could not work with my husband. I cannot um, be with him. I can't be with my wife 24-7. It would just drive me crazy. But Brian and I work, we always have. From day one that we've met, we've been able to communicate, and that's the biggest concern or not obstacle, but it's something that you really need to have is the communication. You can't be on one page and then he's on another page and you're trying to figure out which way you're going to go with the company. We've had many conversations of, well, why did you do it this way? Why, how are we going to fix it? And it's not a blame game. It's more of how are we going to fix this problem? What are we going to do to get us out of this? Um, We're always on the same side And my role is pretty much the accounting portion of it, dealing with all of the how are we going to manage the project, how are we going to, I always think of it as how are we going to pay for the project. Brian's all excited because he's like, oh, I just sold X amount of racquetball courts. I'm so excited. He's excited. I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, how are we going to pay for this? So you have to juggle the cash flow. You have to juggle when the projects are coming in as much as you can. Um, But he is the sales guy. So he deals, he gets all the good news. I get all the bad news. So as soon as a check comes in, he's happy. I'm going, oh, there it all goes. Because we have to pay the bills in order to keep it going. Um, But the joys of being able to work at home, be with your kids, pick up your kids when you need to. If they are sick, they're able to, I'm still able to do the dual roles of being a mom, uh, but yet still run the company. And it was a blessing to be able to do that that whole entire time. Yeah, we complement each other very well, and we rely on each other. So if I'm real wound up because I've got a customer or a vendor that's um, I feel is not treating us fairly and I'm about ready to fire off a real missile in an email, Taiko will always, I always send it to her first so she can look at it and say, okay, well, maybe you shouldn't say this and try to rephrase this. Um, and we go back and forth. And sometimes I try to advocate my position and I say argue, but, but argue in the philosophical sense that you're, you're, you're trying to argue a particular position. You're trying to be persuasive, but yet you're still trying to listen to the other person's point of view. And you find that, that middle of the road and 
not so much a compromise, but we, we both... What's uh, the best for the company? Yes, exactly, because we both have the company's interest at heart, and we're not so personally vested in a particular dogmatic position that we're not willing to look at it from her point of view or her from mine and try to find that balance. That actually sounds pretty unique how your marriage and your personal life go hand in hand with your business because most people try to separate it. Before the podcast, I heard a story from you and I'd like to ask more about it. Has your business ever been scammed? Yes. My first advice to anyone is facing a situation with trying to collect on bad debt is don't put yourself in that position in the first place. And I should have heeded that advice from Taco because that's where we've been hit the hardest. We've been fortunate in our relationships with our dealers that they have stood by us and have always been faithful and always have paid us well. It's the customers who are not repeat customers. The one-time purchase of a glass wall for a YMCA in Georgia, for example. There's so much pressure as the job is nearing completion in production to get it out the door that you forget that this is somebody that you're not dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And so you absolutely must have 100% payment in advance. We take deposits now, 50% deposits for anything that's custom ordered, and then payment in full before the product is shipped. And there have been a couple of times when in my enthusiasm to get the job done on time and get it out the door that we've not been paid. Because he's the sales guy. He's the good news guy. (laughs) I'm the accountant. I'm the one. Did you get paid? Oh, no, but he will. He's good for it. Well, yeah. Sometimes not. (laughs) I'm curious to know a little bit about how freight and logistics work. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Freight issues are always a challenge for us. It's probably 25% of our total expense, but easily 80% of our time. The management of getting a piece of freight from our factory in Texas to a job site in Connecticut, very challenging because the Freight companies don't have the same urgency that we have to get the job done. They don't care. They don't care if they lose it, if it's late, if they break it, and they don't accept any responsibility. On the other side, if they don't show up to pick up the freight, or if they lose it, or if they break it, they could care less. So you've got very expensive product on the road that you're relying on these freight companies to deliver for you, but you have to monitor them minute by minute to make sure that they're getting their, uh, getting the product to your destination because you have installers on the other end who have timelines. They've got to get it done because they have a project to go to after that. The owner has to open the building. The general contractor has to turn it over to the to the university or whatever the situation is, and the freight companies just don't buy into that at all. Damage is a real problem with freight. We had a partic- one particular instance where we shipped from 
Texas at the factory where we buy a, a bulk of our glass from going only as far as Kansas. It wasn't even that far. And somewhere in the distribution hub for the freight carrier, a forklift driver became very careless. And you can see very clearly from the photographs that there are two holes in the side of the crate, perfectly aligned as a forklift went right through the piece of glass. But of course, that's not the freight company's fault. They don't accept any responsibility for it. So even though they have insurance and they have liability, they find the most minuscule, obtuse rule in their tariff someplace that says that they're not responsible. So we have to buy the first piece of glass. We have to pay for the freight to get the first piece of glass there, which was destroyed. Then we have to buy the second piece of glass, and we have to ship it on the same carrier as we did the first time so that we can file a claim against the damage on the first one, which they end up denying. So we end up paying for the product twice and the shipping twice, and then we have to pay for the installer to go back twice. It becomes extremely expensive, and there's no recourse. On the freight side, it's it's difficult to give. We need advice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's getting worse. With transportation, it's getting worse. The, the most recent statistic is that the, the trucking industry is 80,000 drivers short of the demand. So you have 65 and 70-year-old men going out onto the road doing long-haul driving across the country. And the freight companies have universally stopped guaranteeing any transit times. So they publish a three-day transit from Texas to Illinois. But they won't guarantee it. Even if you pay more money, they won't guarantee it because they know they can't deliver. Um, we just had several times where they don't have a truck. You think it's moving. It's still sitting at the original hub. And you're saying, where's the glass? Oh, I don't know. Oh, let me do it. Oh, it hasn't left yet. We didn't have enough material to put on that same truck to get it to where you need it to. So it's a very frustrating portion of our business. Um, it sounds like our businesses were kind of being negative, but there's a lot of positives in doing owning your own company and being a part of building structurals, glass in universities, air force bases, just all across the world. It's very nice to be able to be a part of that and knowing that when your kids go off to college, it's like, hey, those racquetball courts, those are ours. So, and their friend's like, oh, I've played on those. So that's makes it worth it. Yeah, that's one of the requirements of our kids was that if they go to a school with racquetball courts, they have to have ours. So, Which is a pretty good chance. Yeah, pretty good chance. <laughs> UNLV, where two of our kids went, that was the case. Yeah, don't mean to make it sound like it's so gloom and doom, but that is one of the f most frustrating aspects of our job, and I don't really have the mad, the silver bullet of, of how to solve that. It's just a daily challenge. Um, but being able to be a part of your kids' lives, going to their baseball games, people always wonder, and I guess the biggest 
reward or smile that made me feel good is when my youngest went off and he realized how many parents weren't a part of their kids' lives, whether it's through junior high school, high school, whatever it is. He looked back at me and he said, I cannot believe you took me to every single practice and you were there to pick me up after every single practice. You were there and dad were there for every single game that I ever had, whether I had two other brothers that were playing he says you were still there and we that was our life our life for our kids and that's what we wanted our company to work around is our family because family to us is the most important key to a successful business we wanted our company to work I there was no way that I could go to another company work eight to five and try to figure out how am I going to see my kids game that starts at three I wasn't going to put myself through that I wanted to be able to, and I was blessed that that happened, that I was able to make the company work well enough. Maybe we're not the richest people around, but we have spent as much time as we could with our kids. And that's why we did it. Kids never went to daycare. Nope. Never had a babysitter. Never had to. And that concludes the first half of this podcast interview with Taiko and Brian Ritchie. It was really a fun interview and interesting to see how they related their family life into their business life and their work life, which is not something that most people usually do or want to do. Perhaps if anybody has any tips on how to solve their delivery issues, then let me know and I'll deliver that information to them. But I think it's really helpful to get a sense of what different challenges various businesses face in the real world because it's easy to get caught up when you're trying to develop your own idea in the early stages it's easy to think about oh is this idea ready for the market how can I develop this how can I manufacture it but there are actually a lot of challenges down the road that you can't necessarily think of beforehand the main idea there being Don't overthink your ideas too much, especially in the beginning. Just try it out and experiment. You might be surprised at what happens. Next week, Taiko and Brian Ritchie will talk about their story being sued, doing business internationally, and the importance of building relationships. So if you want to know when that comes out, you can subscribe to the podcast, or you can also visit my website at chazokada.com, that's C-H-A-Z-O-K-A-D-A.com, and there you can find links to all my social media pages. There is a Facebook community, a Twitter page, and an Instagram page. So I post there when I release an episode, so you can always stay up to date. And please let me know. Connect with me. Send me an email. Send me a comment on one of my posts. Let me know what you want to hear. Who do you want to hear from? I have some pretty exciting interviews coming up in the future, and I really appreciate your feedback. And until next week, take care.